1: Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Coming up this hour, putting a lid over I-5, putting a lid on the case of the praying high school football coach. We'll discuss that and more as we let you know what happened this week and what it means. With my panel of excellent journalists, insiders, investigative reporter, Catherine Long. Welcome back.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Seattle Channel host and producer, Brian Callanan. Welcome back. Thank you for having me, too, Bill. And independent health journalist Joanne Silberner was going to join us, but she lives on Bainbridge Island. (laughs) And that ferry is not allowing vehicles this week, so there's just no way she's going to be able to.
3: Wait, wait. There she is. How did you get here? I got here by the ferry.
1: Oh. Okay, it worked out. It sounded like chaos.
3: No. It I'm was hearing fine. people saying, I had no idea. They didn't tell me. There's, there's, they started telling people uh, back in last spring. In fact, there were complaints. Why are you telling us this early? <laughs> 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 they have been telling people. And, you know, there is a way not to know, and that is to have never left your house. Because there are signs on all the on the big roads. Uh-huh. And if you've never left your house and you're not on the Internet, and this is the first ferry ride you've taken, and they warn you all <laughs> over the ferry. Then it's possible, but I think there are very few people who match that description. Okay,
1: this has, so this no no motorcycles. You didn't get to ride your motorcycle. No on, no, no bicycles. Scooters? No scooters. No yeah. cars. And this is because of seismic upgrades on the Seattle side. At well, Coleman partly Dock?
3: seismic, but they're, they're putting in all new uh, on the Bainbridge side. They're putting in all new um, walkways. Oh, okay. se- For seismic reasons, oh. and they they. It's, a, it's really cool to, to see they have everything all laid out there, really huge bits of walkway. And they're bringing in a crane, I guess, today, and they're going to put it in place. Oh. It's taking up the parking lot on the Bainbridge side. I think okay. emergency vehicles. I think there's one lane for emergency vehicles. So if you're having a baby or something, you can mm. probably make it over.
1: Well, thank you for stealing that ambulance and coming over <laughs> right. to be on the show. Mm-hmm. I walked on. <laughs> you can watch this show on YouTube or Facebook. We're streaming it for you. Just search KUOW Public Radio. Let's get out the news of this week. A Seattle Police Department employee was fired this week after he was accused of fomenting a rumor about the chief of police. The rumor is that police chief Adrian Diaz had a romantic relationship with someone he later hired to be a top-level advisor. Diaz is married and says through his attorney that this is just a work relationship. It has never been romantic. So he denies that rumor. And so that's where it stays for now. But this firing of this employee who repeated the rumor comes less than a day after KUOW reported on the various external and internal inquiries that have been launched as a result of the rumor spreading through the police department. So, Catherine, without knowing for sure, the nature of this, the disputed nature of this relationship, and given the police chief's denial, what do you think our listeners should know about this, if anything?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to dig into here. There's a lot that we don't know about this. I guess the takeaway that I had from this whole kerfuffle is, uh, wow, what, what a, what an unforced error for the SPD that already has so much uh, criticism directed its way. It's already grappling with a staffing shortage. Um, To have this kind of uh, rumor leak into public, first of all, and also to spend so much time internally, as KUOW reported, there's this sprawling internal investigation into the the source of the rumor, which seems to have uh, taken up a lot of time and attention uh, inside the department.
1: Right. In fact, um, Chief Diaz even told the FBI and the Homeland Security Department about rumors that some police officers maybe were following this advisor around. And so there's this question. Kow talked with a couple of law enforcement evolved attorneys who said that going to these federal, the, the, the feds about this was, quote, outrageous and outlandish. They didn't say it's a policy violation, but the the levels that the police chief apparently went to stop to start investigative balls rolling is now public.
0: It, it was a lot, and I, I guess in looking at it, I'm not quite sure how you quash a rumor like this and he went also to the Seattle Ethics and Elections Board to try to talk to them about what was going on they didn't start any sort of an investigation there's no word yet that any any federal investigation is underway here but it really did get me thinking about how do you do that how do you actually quash a rumor how do you get around to it and and I guess involving these federal agents does appear like a big step but we're talking about Chief Diaz a family man as he has put it publicly has kids, all that, he wants to make sure that this thing is taken care of. And so I think that's what we're seeing play out here with this firing. And uh, yeah, I'm with you, Catherine. I was really interested to see that this is someone who got fired here, who was very high up on his command staff. And so when you have that sort of internal... Uh, combustion, if you will, it can turn into something that is not healthy for the department. So we'll see where we go from here. I know there's a lot more to this story, but, um, yeah, that was uh, unfortunate to see.
1: Joanne, before I hear from you, I just want to point out that, first of all, the fired employee was not one of the many people who KOW reporters spoke to. And and those reporters, uh, Ashley and Isolde, spoke to some 20 different sources about how much um, how distracting in their in their opinion uh, you know how much this is sort of roiling at least parts of the police department so that 's part of their reasoning that this is worth discussing is that this is um, this is happening at a time when you know you would think the police chief needs the confidence of a Seattle police department with a lot on its hands
3: you know i've went back and forth i 've been an editor for a couple of years during my career, and would would I have run this. And, you know, if you talk to me five minutes ago, I had one answer. Five minutes from now, I might have another. Mm -hmm. And at first, though, my first impression was, why are they doing this? This is a rumor. Yeah. But then when uh, in the story, when they talked about that he contacted FBI and Homeland Security, well, now we're bringing in federal agencies into the functioning of a problematic police department, then it's starting to become a story. And then, you know, they really got into problems within the police department, you know, that it's Hurting the functioning. You know, we, they, and and it is, as, as Catherine said, it, it, an unforced error that's not needed. But now when I think about it, though, we don't know exactly what he asked FBI and Homeland Security. What if he asked them, what do I do about this rumor? You know, mm-hmm. what if he, it was, you know, not – you know, sort of bringing in the Feds to to try and heavy hand things, but what if it's like, what do I do? Then it's a different. Then maybe it's still not a story. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's fair. <laughs> the the account and and you know, Isolda Raftery and Ashley Haruka went on KUAW's. Soundside, and this, you, which you can hear, you you can download the podcast of Soundside. There's an online; they published an online uh, version of this, an update. So on the firing, so you can you can read their work and judge for yourself. And I, you know, I don't I don't trust myself to be to be perfect in uh, explaining it for them. But uh, they they also let us know, let the public know, uh, Kow did that the Accountability Office is conducting what's what's called an intake investigation into these complaints right. so that they are so they'll decide whether there's going to be a formal investigation. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. where things
0: sit. The OPA, the Office of Police Accountability. Right. Yes. Okay.
3: And, and as much as it's, it's affecting the functioning of a police department that's come under heavy scrutiny. So that does make it a story. But You know, and and they did – if you listen to the story, they're very careful to always call it a rumor. It was never – they never slipped in their conversation on sound side, which is brilliant and I think really worth listening to for people concerned about this issue. You know, they made it clear this is always a rumor it's always a rumor. You know, but as journalists, it's a tough thing to talk about.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. All right well so we'll 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 certainly learn more about what comes of this uh, this intake investigation and see what more happens. Um sp- since we're talking about the Seattle Police Department uh, this week a federal judge ruled that SPD has complied with on most of the issues that the federal government's been monitoring it for for years not all the issues though brian so how significant is that judge's finding
0: Uh, this is a big deal so this is judge james robart he's been looking at the seattle police department for the past 11 years plus this is the consent decree that you've probably heard about a lot of times and so what he's saying is is that the seattle police department on a big one here it's doing a constitutional job now of using force and that was the big concern back in 2011 when this happened so he's saying all right Use of force, crisis intervention, intervention, bias policing, uh, strong oversight. This is all working well within the police department right now, but there are two things that he does want to keep control over, and that would be uh, with regard to officer accountability, which is a huge one, and crowd control, which is another interesting one too. So this isn't the full boat, like everything's all clear and we're done here. There's definitely a, a work that still needs to be done within the SPD, and that's these two pieces of crowd control and officer accountability They're going to be very difficult uh, over the next couple years, and I I say a couple years because even if the uh, SPD puts a policy in place that is good to go when it comes to crowd control, let's say, just looking at that first – we don't really know what that's going to be like until there's another big protest, mm, right? Yeah. How does that actually work out for people who are out, out in the field? Uh, and on the officer accountability, this is one that I know will lead to a lot more discussion here. This one's very interesting, too, because we're at a point right now, and the judge recognizes this. We're at a point right now where the Seattle Police Officers Guild hasn't had a contract for two-plus years now, and they're in this in the middle of a negotiation with the city And what the judge is saying, we can't negotiate accountability, but that's going to be something that's going to be really scrutinized over the next couple of months here. I know the city wants to come up with a deal for for SPOG, the Police Officers Guild, but that's another part of the question because back in 2019 – the Seattle, uh, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin at the time actually rolled back some of the accountability measures that the city had put in place in 2017. So this is something that the judge is paying very close attention to. I think this officer accountability is really at the center of, of his concern.
3: Brian, were you surprised? I mean, when I looked at, at the news coverage of this, they had the judge lauding the commanders and officers. For what they did, and it was very complimentary. And I I was surprised. Were you surprised?
0: It was, but he also said, This is the beginning. And I think that's an important part of this, too. This isn't a check-done type of situation. Yeah. I think he's saying, this work, and I think you'll hear that from all the police officers, Chief Diaz as well, yeah, we've reached a milestone here, but that doesn't mean we're all done. And certainly, some of the people like the ACLU are out there saying, okay, that's great, we've made some progress here, but guess what, we could use some more work when it comes to biased policing, for sure, uh, and a number of these yeah, some, some
1: SPD, SPD commissioned some studies showing a problem with, with uh, sort of racially disparate yep. use of force. Yep. And that wasn't even part of the official consent decree. It was the, not, the yeah. PD's but it's working. something
0: that, that the SPD needs to keep an eye on. So, yeah, that, that's going to be something. I, he It was basically the the end of the beginning. Yeah, that great phrase there. Yeah, please. It's a,
3: it's a Churchill quote. And, yep. and Judge Robart credited, and he said the end of the beginning, the full quote is now this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the
2: end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. <laughs> well said.
0: Yeah, it's, it's just a process that needs to keep on going.
2: Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see what kind of accountability provisions are negotiated in these ongoing contract negotiations uh, with the Police Officers Guild and, and what Judge Robart thinks of those.
0: Yeah, because the judge himself cannot insert himself within those negotiations. That's, that's something that the city needs to do. And as much as he is saying, you know, you can't negotiate accountability – it is going to be negotiated. I think that's going to be very clear here. So what comes out of it, I'm very interested in this too, but I think the scrutiny is is at a much higher level right now on something that's been very private over the years. These contract negotiations, they're not going to be public. I know the city has fought for that over the years, but it is something that a lot of people, including advocates around our city, uh, are going to be keeping a very close eye on.
1: So Brian, can you give us one more bottom line? Because you started out saying that this finding, this approval, the federal judge's approval of most of the aspects of this consent decree is a big deal. Mm-hmm. So I'm just listening to KUOW. How will I notice who's going to get treated differently? What's Why is this? Give Give us an example of how this is Life has changed this week.
0: I, I think it, I think it's a reflection of something that has changed over the past several years. So I think it's something that has, has already changed within the police department. And it's important to point out, especially with the use of force here, this was really at the center, I think, of this consent decree. It's been on the decline steadily for the past several years, down 49% uh, between the period of 2015 and 2021. So I just think for the average person, that's an important part of it. And then also, it just... For the average person out there, I think this means that the SPD should be able to concentrate... On changing the culture of the department Rather than trying to appease a federal judge And they've got a lot of stuff on the table right now Including this new dual dispatch program That they're going to be rolling out Later on this year Where they're going to have some officers here going to have some social workers here Okay, which which who's going to this 911 call? It's just mm-hmm. a person down Let's send the social workers So I think there's a lot of things that are in play For the police department right now This consent decree is just basically an announcement Of I think where we've been
2: over the past couple years I, I could see it possibly being a, a bit of a, a moral victory as well. Morale victory, rather, yeah, <laughs> for yeah. a department both, that, both. Has, <laughs> that has uh, struggled to recruit new officers in part because of uh, low morale. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, right. Okay, so crowd control, we'll see, as yeah. you said, and officer accountability. Being negotiated. Yeah. Okay, more to come. Boy, my guests know a lot. Yeah, every now and then. About the week, (laughs) a week gone by. This is KUOW's Week in Review with Joe Ansel Berner, Catherine Long, Brian Callanan. I'm Bill Radke. Let's take a short break and see about putting a hat on Interstate 5. We'll be right back.
2: (laughs) Are you enjoying this podcast? Well, you have KUOW members to thank for that. KUOW members make the trusted local journalism and storytelling you hear on this show possible. Become a member today and help support the production of this podcast. It only takes a minute. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks.
1: If you're on Facebook or YouTube, you can see Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan, Insiders Catherine Long, health journalist Joe Anselburner, and me, Bill Radke. Otherwise, take my word for it, we are discussing The news of the week: A plan to build a lid over Interstate Five in downtown Seattle got a nod of approval this week from the city council. It's early. This is a resolution, (laughs) Catherine.
2: It's a resolution to support the idea (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the
1: notion of uh, of, uh, but it does allow the city, or it's a, it's the first step in the city applying for federal money for this, which the city's going to want because it could cost. What, but somewhere between one and two and a half billion... untold billions untold is Bill. a better way to put it. <laughs> so many more because we know how these things go. So, c- uh, Catherine, you want to start us off with some some pro cons about why lid i five or don't?
2: Oh my gosh! Yeah, okay. If 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 this could have if this could be done tomorrow. Major pro! Uh-huh. <laughs> Completely. Uh, I-5, we know, is an open sore. The history of constructing I-5 is is racist. It destroyed neighborhoods. Turning I-5 uh, into something lidded with possibly a park or more housing. I think everybody would support the idea of that, or maybe the resolution of the idea <laughs> to do that. <laughs> uh-huh. right. I think the cons really come into the execution. Uh, I actually doing this. We don't know how much it could cost. It, it's it's going to be in the billions, certainly. We don't know how long it might take. And I think there's also, um, in my opinion, an equity argument to be made. Some of, some of the folks who have been advancing the idea of putting a lid on I-5 have said, listen, we're running out of space to build affordable housing. We need to do this now. This is an opportunity. The freeway needs to have some seismic upgrades anyways. If we're going to do that, we might as well think about putting a lid on it at the same time. Right. My response to that is, there are plenty of places around Seattle that we could we could stick some more affordable housing. Why spend billions of dollars doing mm. it on a freeway?
1: Yeah. And, of course, we know what's been hard about that, the opposition that comes with the densifying. But, uh, yeah, when a project isn't even started yet, you're not always thinking about the the opposition or the downsides or all that. Yeah, That's but right. densifying has been hard so far for Seattle.
0: It exists, and it's interesting to look at this resolution and the vote that happened with it. It was three votes. It's only five council members Very were there. Close. Yeah, only five council Wait, members. Why? Were, why were there only five? It, coming off of a holiday, there they had a quorum. Five is okay. Yeah, but but not every yeah, people were excused. Pretty. People were excused for the absence.
1: But it wasn't because it was so hot. But no, no, people no, no. didn't want no. to be on the record. Okay, no, but okay.
0: but I, I will say that the three council members who did vote for it, and we're looking at Herbold, Strauss, and Lewis. Okay, we got them over here. On the other side, they didn't vote no, but they abstained in voting, and that was Sarah Nelson and Alex Peterson. They have some concerns over the cost of this, and I think that's part of the pushback here. Okay, if we're resolving to be a part of this, what are we committing to? And it was made clear in the meeting there that there's really no committing to anything in terms of dollars and cents, but I was interested in this part of it, Catherine, or Joanne, if you have a thought about this. The whole idea of as I understand it, if you just make it and do it just, if you make it into a park type of a lid, that's closer to that one billion side of things. If you do the development all that, that's closer to the two point five billion. And those those are numbers from a two thousand twenty report that Mayor Durkin commissioned.
1: And not out. just for the buildings, but just to build a platform right. that you could build on. is right. Different from a from
0: flowers. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> right. Good point. <laughs> uh, but what I'm what I'm thinking is, if you do get developers on board, then maybe those developers help defray some of those costs does that enter into the equation at all and what do you think i mean would that would that help to really try to build it up and making it as something bigger so you could get some private dollars coming, make it profitable yeah
2: I think that's a great question. I think that in this interest rate environment, developers are not going to be interested in taking on that kind of it's that big, kind of risk. I mean, yeah. we we saw sort of the the difficulties in getting the convention center uh, expansion done uh, during the pandemic, and the type of public support that was needed to ultimately get that over the finish line. Um, I I I I doubt that uh, many risk mindful developers would be. Ju- jumping at the bit to take on a project like this.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's a
2: lot, yeah. Can I just bring up the big dig?
3: Mm. East oh. Coasters will recognize this. Anyone who was near Boston in the the last part of the 20th century will know what happened there. They put, uh, it was about, I think it was a mile and a half underground, and they put a park on top. Uh, but then there were several other airport approaches, other things in there. So it was uh, probably a little bit more extensive but in nineteen eighty two dollars, the initial estimate was let me just look this up, was uh two point eight billion when they finished, by the way, twenty one years later, it was seven point four billion was the cost. Yeah. And if you want to do it in twenty twenty dollars to get a sense of it, it was uh, it went from seven point four billion to twenty one and a half billion. Oh boy. Yeah. That's it, there was a huge cost overrun. And then I'm gonna just read you the list of problems cost overruns, delays, leaks, design flaws, charges of poor execution, use of substandard materials, criminal charges and arrests. And one motorist died when the top of the tunnel came down on them. They had to redo the whole top of the tunnel. I mean... I would love to see this done. It would make such a difference to downtown. But first of all, if it takes as long then from planning to completion as it did, I'll be 90 years old when it's done. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know how much I'm going to get to enjoy it. Uh, And second of all, it's going to be chaotic.
1: Yeah, the disruption. I mean,
3: and this is for years. It's going to be – and just look at what happened over at Montlake. You know, uh, and that was much smaller in in size than this, so the if viaduct
1: we, mm-hmm. yeah That's and, another, and fix yeah. well
3: fixing up you know the approach to five twenty right. and, and capping the bit there. it was just really disruptive, and this is in a much more heavily trafficked area, like i said i'd love to see it done, but on a three to two vote on this or a three two abstention vote on the city council we're going to need a lot more. Support and people are going to have to really buy into it for this to happen.
0: And and it's not just the city either. We're talking about the city. We're talking about the state. We're talking talking about federal help right. too. Because you, yeah, we're talking about an interstate here. So that's the part of it where I'm kind of waiting to see what happens here. Uh, and I just I just don't know how you get that amount of agreement together on such a mega, mega, mega project like yeah. this one. It's a lot, which isn't to say you shouldn't do it. I mean, yeah. we've had successful lids around our area here. And again, it would be great to see it. But there are definitely some major caveats with this.
3: And is there anything to be learned from what happened down on the waterfront? How do you mean? Um, how to do things, how to get things done, whether we can take on something this big. Yeah,
1: I wish the former mayor of Seattle, Mike McGinn, were here, because I don't know whether he would say, yeah, it would be a big disruption to people driving in their cars, and hallelujah. Yeah. You know, right. I right. don't know. That's, that's probably
0: what point. he'd say. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, let's uh, keep moving. Well, so that's as, as a resolution to support the fancy of the notion of the dream of a possible <laughs> asking for the feds for money to put a lid over uh, some amount of Interstate 5 downtown. Okay, another another uh, uh, much-talked-about uh, issue this week. Remember the Bremerton High School assistant football coach? He defended his right to pray at midfield, defended it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and won. He got his old job back, and last Friday, he finally returned to the field, played one game, prayed on that field, and then he quit this week. Joe Kennedy says he left because his father-in-law is very sick. He says the Bremerton School District retaliated against him. Catherine, are there any reasons not to believe any of his claims?
2: I'm going to say, first of all, that I I am perhaps among the minority of Seattleites who believe that we should maybe cut praying Joe Kennedy, some slack. Uh, I think that uh, it, at least back in 2015, when this saga started, he uh, seemed to be a, a, a Christian coach who wanted his players to succeed. And he very genuinely felt that the way to get them to win games <laughs> was to get them a little bit closer to God. Uh, this well, just- are,
1: I should say, there's a lots of pro play, uh, uh, players at all level who they scored a touchdown all the glory to god i mean this is not Certainly. that unusual
2: right um the school district but he's didn't an authority like it. figure. he is an authority yeah. figure he was asking his players to play to sorry to pray with him in the locker rooms before games and also after games at midfield the school district didn't like it they asked him to stop and he initially agreed which i think is something that sometimes gets left out of the story and then this right wing legal institute from texas the liberty institute got into the fray and that's when things started really spiraling they convinced him to re to restart the prayers, uh, he got he his contract with the school district did not get renewed. They took his case all the way to the Supreme Court, where they uh, characterized it in a way that was um, perhaps uh, inconsistent with reality. Uh, they uh, many times said that he had been fired, which was not true. Uh, they said that he wanted his job back, which I, I I believe he he was offered the opportunity to get his job back, and he did not apply for Could it. Could
0: have done it last year. Yeah,
2: exactly. Right. Um. And but the Supreme
1: Court seemed to believe that he legitimately felt like there's a way to get somebody to quit without literally firing them. I mean, that was that was discussed, right? And the the, so the Supreme Court seemed to think that, that he wasn't treated right.
2: Right. I mean, I think, you know, he he was he was certainly pressured by the school district to please stop praying yes. <laughs> with mm-hmm. the players. Yes. Uh, and, and he seemed to think that that was a violation of his of his. Um, his his liberties Mm -hmm. uh i think also that somewhere between then and now he has discovered or people close to him have discovered that there is uh, potentially a little bit more profit in being a (laughs) right-wing influencer than being a high school football coach absolutely here's where i
3: start to lose sympathy (laughs)
2: yeah Yeah. he was like
3: a he was a
1: part-time assistant football coach it was not a big gig of his no he's only a few thousand dollars Right. right
2: that was it Uh, So he's
1: putting food on the table and and who knows what else. He's launched a
2: new career as a motivational speaker. He's been uh, supporting Donald Trump on the campaign trail in 2016. Mm -hmm. Who knows uh, this time around? Uh, and he also has a uh, a new book coming out for which uh. I have been getting many marketing emails, mm. all of which have been uh, really uh, uh, touting his return to the field last week as a big as a big selling point for this new book. And yeah. I just I have to say I think you know this narrative arc of him returning for a final game and then. Quitting, uh, as he said, uh, in in sort of an inimical environment from the school district. Mm-hmm. So. Is a pretty good way to sell some sell some books, but yeah, he what do I know?
1: he was vindicated. Well, in speaking his s- mind. speaking of game. money
3: here, the Bremerton is going to have to pay court costs, I believe, and I have no idea how much that is, but it's not going to be a small amount. The taxpayers are going to get. I believe stuck it's, with that it's bill. over a
2: million dollars. Is it? Wow, yeah. that
1: is how the system works.
0: Yeah, I I, and I guess I, I look at it too, and the. The piece that you don't hear a lot about in this whole shuffle is the players that are involved here. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine being a player on that team over the last four years, let's say. I mean, COVID and all that other stuff notwithstanding, this is just a lot for a for a kid to go through. And I, I read a few different quotes from players who were saying, you know, this this game that Kennedy came back and coached, there was not a big gathering at the, at the field. Athlete. I saw that. He, he basically went out and prayed by himself. Yep. And so I think a lot of these players are just saying, and one of them actually said, I don't want to be on TV like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just like, I, I yeah, want to play football. I want to be in high school yeah. and I want to play football. And so when this turned into something that was a lot more than that, then I think that it, uh, at least from a, a, a student's perspective, and maybe some of them did want to pray with them, etc. But when that turned into the focus of, what they're doing as a team rather yeah. than actually playing as a team and just being high schoolers and playing football that I think something was lost there, too. And, and that's uh, uh, that's unfortunate. That's that's a really uh, uh, difficult thing for students to have to go through yeah. or be pushed into, I guess.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It w- wasn't about the kids.
0: No, it sure didn't seem to be on that.
1: Well, I'm. I, I was glad, Catherine. You started out by saying that you feel um, in a minority of Seattleites <laughs> to cut this guy some slack because I have had the feel like I don't know this guy, and I'm, you know, he could be, could be, mouth could be dripping with lies. I have no, <laughs> I don't know Joe Kennedy, no. but, but I could, do we feel could start like start a rumor. Was start right. a rumor oh anyway. No, oh, but I do feel that there's been I, I that I've been listening to a kind of echo chamber of. It To me, it has felt, for me personally, it feels like this is about society's polarization to most people. Like, if you don't like an authority figure doing a Christian prayer with high school students, understandably, and you're mad at the current Supreme Court, understandably— then you also become an authority on whether someone you've never met is a liar and who gets to stay in what job for how long for what reason and whether high school students are getting a civics lesson or they're just purely victims and whether profiting off your life story is a immoral thing to do. You just and you get to have all of those opinions. But I'm just saying you could you don't have to align your dismissiveness of a human being With your political take, but it's very hard for me, for everyone I know, to separate all those
2: things. I think you're certainly right. I'm sorry, Joanne. Yeah, there's such a history of this.
3: When I was in grade school, they were still arguing over the 1954 inclusion in the Pledge of Allegiance of under God you know, and this was 10 or 15 years later, uh, it was such a hot argument throughout the 60s. And that's sort of been forgotten. And this might be forgotten, except for the Supreme Court decision. Mm -hmm. But it's such a fundamental issue of the separation of church and state. And that's really not what's getting talked about here. And and it should. That really is the issue.
0: And and what do you think happens next? I mean, fallout from this. Where Where are we going to see the next Joe Kennedy, or is that going to happen? I know that Bremerton— You'll see him on the big screen. Yeah, you will. That's true. (laughs) That's uh, stumping for candidates, et cetera. Yeah, right. Is is this something— Trump Trump 2024. Is is there something where different coaches are going to try something here? I I don't know. I I just wonder what the actual fallout of the Supreme Court decision is. Right. Maybe it just forces more schools like Bremerton to be very— uh, uh, you know, rigid in terms of okay, here's the rules, here's how we're going to do it in compliance with the Supreme Court. But I, I don't know. Do you think there's other Joe Kennedy coaches out there? that are going to try something like this. And anyone think?
2: I'm sure there are. I mean, Joe Kennedy has said that he was inspired to do this by an evangelical movie that showed um, a, a football team right. starting to win after yeah. it began to pray. I, I'm sure he's not the only person who saw that and, and got a got an idea from it. Yeah,
1: it's a good question about how many school districts are how many. Coaches, there are praying on fields and courts and gyms because of that. I, I, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. I, regarding Bremerton, I did read that the I think, I think I read this in the Seattle Times that the school district changed its policy to say, okay, you can pray if you're not actively supervising players right. and you keep your a certain distance from the students when the prayers begin, and after that, the students can join you if they want to. They got more specific about what they're allowing. So yeah. that's a civics lesson. That's interesting right there.
0: Yeah, I hope so. And it, it just it just leads me back to that whole argument that was going forth in the Supreme Court. Were these players being coerced in some way to, right. to pray? And I mm-hmm. just, I, I I don't know if that's the right verb, but wow, I sure would have felt pressured if I were a player there, leading by example. There's my coach. What am I supposed to do? I I guess I'm supposed to follow my coach, and yep. I, I don't know. That that's that's a tough one for for students to think about.
1: I definitely would have felt pressured. Yeah. And
0: then that, so,
1: but then that led to a Supreme Court conversation about whether that internal feeling of a student who may or may not feel pressure, and students aren't all the same. True. Do, how does that bear on this person's rights? And a different court is going to, you know, a changed court in the future might. Decide this very differently mm. um, Before we take a break Can I get a um, uh, Here on Weekend Review There was a report out this week Joanne About how many people In uh, mental or behavioral health crisis Are getting turned away From our local treatment facilities Like more than a thousand times a year Would you tell us why that's happening?
3: Well it, It's uh, It's happening Because the facilities The facilities turn them away Because the patients Or the, the prospective uh, patients Are too sick or they're too aggressive, or they have developmental disabilities like autism, uh, things that can be hard to deal with in a situation. Navos, which is one of the groups, said that they have trouble taking people with wounds because they don't have nurses on hand to take care of them, or if they need regular dialysis treatment, that becomes a home management problem. They might have a mobility issue. And only 10% of them, to the turnaways, which is 26% of people presented to facilities, 26%, uh, were, we're turned away. I mean, that's just, just too high. I mean, the, the facilities can't handle them. Maybe we need to get some better oh, facilities. Yeah, and
1: it's not just a lack of beds, in other words. You're no, saying only there are 10%, people. They, only they need too much help. Like, they're, they're, they're in trouble.
2: They, and, uh, yeah. Right,
1: and so <laughs> then
2: didn't that's have why the right personnel to, to help right. them. So, yeah. so what gives? I mean, aren't aren't these the facilities that people are supposed to go to right. when they right. <laughs> when they're yeah. in trouble and they need help?
3: You know, and people say they're working on it. It's uh, but there's been no real significant improvement over the last couple of years, at least. Well,
1: Brian, the, yeah. the King County voters uh, passed a levy to was it to address just this. Yeah, this in spring? April.
0: Yeah, yeah. This was uh, the crisis care centers levy, and it it passed with a lot of support, and I think a lot of people have recognized. Something like what we're talking about here, a walk-in type of clinic to deal with behavioral health issues. That's what this crisis care levy was all about. A lot of people wanted to support that and tax themselves to make that happen. I think the issue with that, though, is this crisis care center's levy, that was great with the vote, but it's not really going to have facilities online. King County would not until 2026, it looks like. So I think this has been a problem for many, many years, not having enough of the facilities that are needed for the people who need help. And these people, as you talked about, you and they need more help. And it's a very diverse type of help. It's not just the medical, it's the mental. Oh, guess what? There's some addiction issues and some other things, too. And so... There's some very specific facilities that can help them out. Harborview is one of them. Right. But that's more of like an emergency type of situation. Right. You, know, you don't want to keep people in that hospital type setting for too long either. So right. I, this is something that our region has struggled with. It's happening all around the country. And I'm hopeful that this crisis care center's levy can do that because it's supposed to be that everybody walk in, you can get a reference from law enforcement or your family or just walk in yourself. But I I, I don't think that we can get them online fast enough. Mm-hmm.
3: Right. And what you say about harm review is true. I think their turn away rate was something like 2%. Right. As opposed yeah, they're to 26%. got the they are set up to take it because they can take care of people who have wounds or yeah. need dialysis or need, but, but they, but Brian's exactly right. That's not necessarily where you want people long-term. No,
1: no. Yeah. Uh, and we have another healthcare story that was uh, fascinating to me, and I thought very well reported in Crosscut that we're going to address as we continue with Week in Review right after we take a little break, and we're going to be right back. Don't go away. KUOW's Week in Review this week is Seattle Channel host Brian Callanan, independent health journalist Joanne Silberner, insider investigative reporter. Catherine Long. I'm Bill Radke. And there was a report in Crosscut this week that the people who fight our wildfires, our increasing number of wildfires, are increasingly urban or at least exurban wildfires, Catherine, are inhaling that smoke without respirators. Why is that?
2: Well, first of all, I just want to say I thought this article was was fascinating. The reporter, Hannah Weinberger, did a did a great job the the reasons i she as she reported are are complex for why wildland firefighters don't have working respirators there's a profit reason there's a uh, technology reason, and there is uh, seemingly a, a, a bit of a, a human element in there as well. Taking them one by one, it seems like respirator manufacturers don't feel like the market is large enough uh, to allow them to profitably make respirators that would work for wildland firefighters. Um, the uh, technology reason is that these uh, these respirators would need to do a lot. They would need to do a lot more than other respirators that firefighters currently use. They need to be able to obviously filter particulate matter from the air, mm-hmm. but also, they need to be really light so that these firefighters can carry them. And they need to be so well-functioning that firefighters can use them while they're basically doing the equivalent of running a marathon with a 30-pound weight on their back.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and that combination uh, is is quite difficult to manufacture. And then the, the final element is is changing the behavior of wildland firefighters who have not used respirators in the past and feel like maybe using one going forward could uh, infringe on their ability to do their jobs the way that they've done it so far. Uh, that being said, these respirators are clearly needed. Uh, um I guess wildland firefighters are, are dying from complications of cardiovascular disease and lung cancer uh, at rates that are far higher uh, than than the rest of the, the population. Um, and it sounds like uh, tests are, are ongoing to develop a new model of respirator that might work and, and check all the boxes.
3: Yeah. What about the issue of a lot of these folks being convicts who were given the option to go out and do this, but guess what? We're not going to give you safety equipment. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, this is something that I find fascinating. Uh, The number of wildland firefighters who are inmate volunteers uh, is is quite high. In California, about 30 percent of wildland firefighters are prison inmates. Uh. Uh, They're volunteering through a program that allows them to uh, learn uh, forestry skills, but also – they, they fight fires. They uh, are
1: volunteering. They do have the option. To they not... have
2: the option. Yeah. I have some questions and others have some questions as well about, you know, if you're in prison and you don't have a ton of opportunities yes. to get job experience, you're yeah. thinking about what am I going to do sure. after I, I get out of here. Yeah. And this is one option for you where you can leave the prison. You can uh, have a little bit more freedom and control over your life. This sounds maybe attractive, but the flip side is... It's very risky. Yeah.
0: It, it's difficult work, and I just wanted to jump in because I've I've covered wildfires before in, in my work as a TV news reporter. And on a very, you know, I'm not in there battling and chopping down, uh, you know, limbs and things like that. But I've been there with the Nomex suit and the boots on and rolling through and, and driving through roads where you see the canopy, like, burning on either side. It's like, we got to get the heck out of here. And so I just remember trying to be in those situations and just – Just the act of breathing, how difficult that was. I mean, the fire is is taking all that oxygen away, basically. And so you're left in these situations where it's so difficult. And you talk about these uh, heroes that are out there doing this type of work. Just the amount of load that they're putting on themselves to be breathing as hard as they are and doing all the work that they do, it's its a lot. And again, I know only a fraction of it, but in talking with these workers, they are a very proud group, and I think that they, they want to do this work. They're proud of what they do, but at the same time, I think they're getting overextended because... The other part of Hannah's article that I thought was very telling is that this whole fire season that used to be, oh, that's just from that later part of summer, and then it'll be over with in the autumn. Guess what? That's going almost year round now. So in terms of doing something for these wildland firefighters, we have to do something because we're going to lose a lot of these people if we keep putting them in harm's way like this again and again and again.
1: I also think we need to say, I I mentioned exurban at the top because- more and more of the, you might think, uh, well, fires, that's, um, that's trees and grass. That's organic. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, even you know, even a wild to pure brush fire, et cetera, is not good for, for your lungs. And not only that, but more and more of these fires happen in the interface between the, the natural world and the built world. So now you're talking about um, toxic chemicals from human-made structures getting into people's lungs.
0: Yeah, that's that's the interaction that we're talking about. Los Angeles uh, dealing with that a lot now, and I think it's happening in our region too, and it's just you think about the different training that firefighters have to go through when they get into this kind of wildland situation. Sure, they're going to call in some backup, but, but again, you know, is that backup always going to be there? They have to be ready for all these different situations.
1: Well, this is going to sound sort of... Uh... This is a little dark, but I w- when you said that these manufacturers don't see enough profit in making uh, these kinds of respirators, I thought, yeah, unfortunately, there'll be more. There seems to be more and more and more demand for respirators mm. like yeah. these. So uh, okay, well, I I commend you to that uh, reporting in Crosscut from Hannah Weinberger. Uh, don't have the headline right in front of me, but. Uh, you can find it. Good work on that. And um, we're 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 getting toward the end of the show. Speaking of respirators, Joanne, you're you being a health reporter, I wanted to ask you if the uptick in COVID cases have you uh, masking up more than you were when summer began, or any of you?
3: Well, I'm over sixty five, so yes, absolutely. In crowds, I do it. Uh, I just, I don't mask outside or when it's a very well ventilated area. Uh, The uptick is from a very low point. You know, when you compare it to Omicron or Delta surges, it's really not much. Uh, There is a new, you know, there's a new vaccine coming out. I think in a couple of weeks, the health department seems to think it's only a couple of weeks away. They were throughout the summer saying, "Go ahead and get up to date on your vaccination anyway. Don't wait for the new vaccination." Now they're saying, "Well, you know, you might want to talk to your doctor about waiting for the new vaccination. It sort of depends." And they didn't want to issue a blanket statement. So um, it's coming back a little bit. It's not it's not way, way, way back. Uh, It's but it's still there. It's it's you know, we're living with it.
0: I think we're seeing more cases. And I I've talked to my doctor, too. And it's like, okay, maybe do the the covid flu vaccine combo coming up here later in in September. Just it's I think it's something that's on everybody's mind. I've been kind of lax and staying up to date on covid vaccinations for sure. And uh, I'd like to be on top of that because I've had COVID before. It's no fun, and I know it's taken millions of lives. And so, uh, yeah, it's 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 something that's top of mind for me. And and when we see these cases go up, even when it in, is just a little bit, I I certainly get concerned about it.
3: Well, the number the two point six out of every hundred thousand. Well, I'm, I'm, I really should get this number right. Uh, two point six hospitalizations out of every hundred thousand okay. people is what we were at last week. That's that's pretty low, but. If it's rising, you just, you know, this has been the one predictable thing about COVID is that it is really unpredictable. Mm-hmm.
1: And is there any, do we know that there's no downside? I'm, I'm thinking what, what might listeners be wondering, because uh, Brian mentioned getting the COVID flu combo. Is there any medical downside to getting two shots at once?
3: Uh, not with those two. Uh, I think with RSV, which is a third one that people might want to consider this year, now that it's available. RSV is this oh, res- respiratory syncytial virus, which yeah. is serious for for babies and uh, for people with bad immune sy- or de- compromised I say bad compromised immune systems or elderly people. Um, with, with with RSV, I think that there's an issue with COVID and The flu, I think, we're okay to get at the same time. The two vaccinations. There's, you know, there are some doubters that, especially if you've had COVID before, that another vaccine is going to help. I I looked at the data myself. I'm an amateur. Obviously, I'm not an immunologist. Um, I'm in the. I join the immunologists who do say yes, the boosters help. They certainly help in the short run. They they bring your antibodies up right away Mm -hmm. uh, to to a higher point. So. They're at least good in the short run, and I'm I'm certainly going to get mine.
1: And the guidance hasn't changed. You're you're in a crowded indoor place. The voluntary department. masking, recommended masking, all that's the same uh, as it's been for... So,
3: yes, yeah, some of the hospitals are picking up now a little bit where they're having, you know, uh, in, in certain areas of the hospital or with certain clinicians and, and health care providers, they're asking them to mask. So they're upping their masking a little bit, but the county has not made any general masking announcements other than they've always recommended, you know, small crowded places. They've always recommended it.
1: Final question. Do we know whether this is affecting vaccinations in general? Usually, most of that is among children, decisions made by parents.
3: Yeah, the uh, uh, 91, I'm just looking at my numbers here, uh, 91% of kids are up to date on routine vaccinations, 22 to 23. Uh, It was a slight decrease uh, from maybe like less than a percentage point decrease from previous years. So vaccination Hmm, is still, is, is pretty good. No. Could be better. I mean, you want with measles and these other diseases. You really want, you know, they're very infectious, and you really want them a hundred percent.
1: No. Okay, uh, we've got five minutes left in the show. We have some time to smile for the love of smiling. <laughs> if there's anything in the news uh, this week, uh, did it, did anyone come across something hopeful this week?
0: I don't know if it was hopeful, but it did make me smile. There's this guy down in the Florida area. Reza Bellucci is his name. And he was trying to go across the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean oh, yeah. using like a hamster wheel that he constructed out of floats or whatever else. Yep. He was kind of trying it during a hurricane. <laughs> not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And he has tried this before many times over the past several years. He's in some trouble with the court. I don't want to discount that. Might have a few mental issues going on. I don't want to discount that either. But in looking at this guy, I just thought... What grit to try to actually go across the <laughs> in Atlantic in a, a hamster wheel. I mean yes. if if they can put a man on the moon, Bill, why can't we cross <laughs> the Atlantic in a hamster wheel boat? Come on. Yeah. I think he's been told not to do that no, anymore. Absolutely but, not.
1: But I, I share your soaring feeling when yes. you see some of this colorful hamster wheel. More you hamster know, wheels. There's yes. gotta be a movie about that. It's, <laughs> it's coming. Um, any anything
2: else? Uh, I have been following the saga of former Seattleite Dave Clark, a former Amazon executive, who it looks like maybe is going to try to run for the governor of Texas. We'll see. Oh. Uh, he just got uh, ousted from his post-Amazon job at a logistics company uh, in very gossipy circumstances. Uh, all of that kerfuffle has—I've uh, I- been following that as a former Amazon reporter, and that's been making me smile. Republican. But, he hasn't he hasn't said. Oh, okay. Yeah, because you know,
1: sometimes politicians will turn their 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 troubles and their accusations into a selling point. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I don't know what happened with this guy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We'll see, Joanne. You made it here on a Um, walk-on ferry. That's that's exactly
3: what made me smile. This was done right. There's been so many problems on the ferry system, and really serious ones with staffing, with the boats themselves, with the failure of the state to put enough money into the system. In my opinion. This was something that worked, and whoever ran it, I don't know who ran it, they should be in charge of everything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I noted a couple more stories you might hear more about. Washington State, uh, you know, we started auctioning off the right to emit carbon. Companies pay for that right, and this week was auction number three, and the bidders keep on raising the price. Um, it doesn't mean they pollute less, but the state uses the money for to, to adapt or maybe even reduce climate change. Revenue so far, a billion and a half wow. dollars. Yeah. Uh, wow. Unfortunate news, homicides on pace in Seattle to exceed the all-time number. Oh. It's 57 so far, the record 69 in 1994. So That's we'll for keep the whole watching year. that. Yeah. That's for the whole year. Yeah. Amazon maybe is about to get sued by the Federal Trade Commission according to the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. Uh, their reporting says this lawsuit would claim that Amazon's power in the online marketplace leads to unfair business practices. KUOW spoke to a company that helps sellers compete on Amazon. Justin Lay of Workflow Labs says that company is so powerful and automated that it's sort of anti-business, but whether that's antitrust and bad for customers would be harder to prove. Everything about Amazon's platform is designed to increase selection and lower cost to customers. So we'll see if that uh, if that lawsuit gets, uh, gets made public this month. And finally, who gets to call themselves Pike Place? <laughs> A great story did you see in the Seattle yep. Times? Pike Place Fish Market is famous for throwing their fish inside the market. They also sell their fish outside the market with their mail order business. And the group that manages the market is suing the fishmongers for using the name Pike Place allegedly infringing on the market's trademark and undermining its integrity and reputation, and the story gets into trademark law and tradition, and who was there first? Why does Starbucks get to sell Pike Place coffee outside of the market? Um, And, I mean, you don't get more of a local icon than the name. I mean, Pike Place Market got its name from a city street, so maybe Seattle taxpayers deserve a... A cut as well. That's a tough that, one. That they then owed to the Duwamish people. whose yeah, right. S- land stolen land made all this money making possible. Um, so that was all interesting to me. And then fun, just something. Um, I don't know. I have a a weak smile. I guess was the fact that UW researchers found they did find meth on every bus and train service <laughs> surface that they tested, and in almost all the air samples, and fentanyl on most of the surfaces. Uh, But the uh, clinical toxology researcher, Dr. Rob Hendrickson, told KUOW the amount of drugs they found— too small to harm drivers or riders. In most cases, you know, isn't an that just how like every dollar
2: bill has cocaine on it, or yeah. or is that an urban what? legend? That is,
1: that's pretty much was my reaction. This doctor says an exposure would be hundreds to thousands of times lower than what we would expect to cause so clinical n- effects.
3: Don't worry if you want to lick the bus seat. Yeah, <laughs>
0: not a good idea.
1: Right. Maybe just hold the strap, right, maybe with right. a glove. I don't know, but uh, okay, so. I, I, that's that's pretty much it for the week. I think our work here is done. Thank you, everybody. Well, thank you. For thank you, the Bill. Show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. everyone. Thanks, that's, everyone. That's yeah. Catherine Long there, investigative reporter at Insider. Brian Callanan, host and producer at Seattle Channel, waving at the camera. Independent health journalist Joanne Silberner. And thank you to producer Kevin Kenistet and on the board, Bernard Wallett making it sound great. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks.